So uh, page 41. No, that's not correct. Yeah, it is. This is May 1st. I'm right. I'm right. Mark that down. I was right this morning. <laughs> she held up one finger. She's like, she's like, we'll give it to him. We're going to give it to him this morning. Central truth for today's, let's say the title first, salvation and divine favor promised. Central truth is that God restores lives that have been broken by sin. Amen. Now we're all, uh, I mean, if you've been saved, then, then you're a witness to that. You, you know what God's power can do. Um, and you know every one of us have a story. And your story matters. Your story matters. It matters, it matters to God. Um, not in the way so much as, you know, I have a story. I haven't given it so much. I never felt like that was really something I needed to do. It's not so much what I've done, but what I'm doing currently now that matters. Now, some of our testimonies in the past can, can yield some great results. Um, and I think we shouldn't be, uh, once we're saved, we, we understand where we came from, we understand what we come out of. And I think that's probably the most important part about salvation is understanding not where we are anymore, but where, where we are currently at in standing with God. We stand in a very good place with the Lord this morning. Um, some of you may take the opportunity to come to the altar. Some of you may raise your hand this morning. All of that because of the redemptive work of Christ. All of it. Because when you do come to the altar or you do raise your hand or at any moment you make a decision to touch um, to touch the Lord, he reaches out and touches you. And that can only be done by salvation alone. So, praise God for that. So under, um, let's get started this morning. Although the people of Judah had rebelled against God's commands and had repeatedly broken the covenant he had made with them, he still loved them and wanted to restore a good relationship with them. So, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah proclaiming that they would be taken into captivity as a result of their rebellion and disobedience. And I thought that was actually kind of funny. It was a bit comical to me. And I thought, wait a second. You know, the way that the, the way that the lesson kind of structures it is that he loved them so much that he allowed them to make the decisions that they were going to make, and then he allowed them to fall into captivity. And and so what that does is, is that brings up a point. And I want to make sure that we understand this point, because this is very much God. Is that the way that you and I view love is not the way that God views love. Yeah. And I think we're often wrong, just flat wrong in the way we view love or even define it. Um, we, we kind of define love in, in more of a lovey-kissy, huggy-hugs, X's-O's kind of love. Can we agree with that? Yeah. Typically, that's kind of how we, we view that. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing either. But the way that if you start really looking at the way God defines love, and you, it's scriptural-based. I mean, we know that love is the greatest gift of all. We also realize that without love, that we're pretty much void of anything of worth, right? So when you start talking about what love looks like, you have to look at what God did and how he handled himself, how he handles his children. Um, let me give you a small degree uh, example of that. It's, it's no different except on a level of degree of the way that a parent disciplines their child. And if you discipline your child correctly, they're going to learn from it, and they're going to grow up, and they're going to do something of value and of worth. They're going to do it. Now, when you discipline your child, you're probably not going to enjoy that moment. But it's vital that both of you get through it. 
It's vital. It's vital that the child understand what the punishment is for, and it's vital that the parent actually enact the punishment itself. One of the trends that I see today is that people are confused about the love for their own children. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, wait a second, that's not right. You ain't going to tell me how I love my child. Now, let me explain something. People are, are confused today about the love for their children because what that looks like is if I love my child, I make sure they understand what wrong is and that they are punished accordingly for what they've done. A misconception of love is huggy, huggy, kissy, kissy, X's and O's, even when they don't deserve it. It's like, okay, today you need to be punished. You've done wrong. Today you've done something bad. Today you need to know that you're wrong. That's what a parent does. And the, for some reason, the views on that have changed dramatically in our country and fast. Fast. And so now we've got this, um, this uh, uh, generation that feels entitled. Now, let me explain to you why they feel entitled. Do you think I blame the child? No. I blame the parent for the entitlement. Because it was our fault that we did not make sure they understood that they were wrong and that you don't get rewarded for wrong. But our culture is teaching that you get rewarded for wrong. And, and, and by all means, they'll, they want to arrest you for not telling your child that they're right when they're wrong. You should make sure that child knows that they're, they're loved. Misinterpretation of love. Make sure you understand what love, what love actually means in the way that, that we perceive God, what his love is for us. Because, I mean, did what he, we look at the cross as an example, right? But can we also all agree that we don't even fully understand the cross? Maybe even to the degree that there, yes, it was a physical action, but there were things that obviously happened in the spirit realm that we don't fully understand. We had that as a, as a type and shadow, as an example to us, but we don't fully get how much he loves because he follows his own definition of love. He does not follow yours or mine. He doesn't care how you define it. He just walks by what he created. If he created the definition of love, and he did, by the way, he created it. So if he creates the definition of love, then he expects us to abide by that version of it, not our own version. But in life, at times, we get confused and we get lost. We take detours and we lose sight of what real love actually looks like. Here, and what you're going to be looking over uh, throughout this lesson, is a love that allowed captivity because of disobedience, it wasn't necessarily a direct love, like saying, I love you so much, I'm going to let you fall into captivity. No, they were disobedient, so they deserved it, right? Can we all agree with that? Amen. It's funny, too, to me. That, I mean, we look at what God did, and he punished his children for what they had done. When they had done wrong, so he punished them. And we agree with that. We agree with that point of it. But there's so many parents today that won't punish their children. Like, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with the, the standard of a child being reprimanded for what they've done. But then when we look at this, we realize that God took this stuff serious. I mean, he really took it serious. And that punishing his children was a part of the love process. It was a part of the love process. Um, you're going to, you, as you go through this, 
we realize that yes, did he was were they rebellious? Absolutely. Were they disobedient? You betcha. But also at the end of this lesson, you'll notice if I can get there, you'll notice at the end of this lesson, he exemplifies once again love and says, This is the reason I did all these things. It's because I wanted there to be a chance and a hope that they would return to me. Love. That's love. That's real love. But real love often does not look like like we interpret it. We have to make sure that we're walking by God's defined version of love and not our own. So um, God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah proclaiming that they would be taken into captivity as a result of their rebellion and disobedience. But he would not leave them there. Rather, he would bring them back to their homeland after a time of exile in Babylon. And, and so we all know also that God doesn't work on your time frame, does he? God does not work on, on your time frame. No. Uh, you remember the exile, uh, exile amount of years? 70? I mean, let's, that's a lifetime. That's a lifetime. You think, whoa, hold on a second. That's kind of extreme, isn't it? I mean, seven weeks, max. <laughs> seven weeks, God, max. I mean, that's long enough to learn a lesson. No. God says, in order for this to work out correctly, for you to really understand where I'm coming from, and when, when I say something, I mean business, the exile is going to be 70 years. 70 years. That's that's hard. That's hard to really wrap my mind around, really. But but when, I'm coming back to this because this we can connect this, or we're going to connect it to, yes, rebellion and disobedience. We're also going to connect it to the, the structure of love that God has for his children, that in order for there to come about a correct form of, of uh, allegiance to him, there's going to have to be some things take place to break the current system down to allow something better to be built in its place. Okay. So as we see in today's lesson, God gave Jeremiah a striking visual image to illustrate his promise to them. Through his actions, we can learn much about the method, message and methods of the Old Testament prophets. In the year 586 BC, shortly before Jerusalem was sacked and its population exiled by the Babylonian army, we see the prophet Jeremiah doing an unusual thing, buying property. From a human perspective, this would seem to have been a strange transaction. But when we explore the reason behind it, we see that this picture, uh, this picture was a carefully crafted prophetic message of hope. Okay, let's read our scriptures, page 42. <clears throat> Haley, good. Uh, Jeremiah 33, King Zedekiah had put in there, asking why he kept giving this prophecy. This is what the Lord says, I am about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will take it. King Zedekiah will be captured by the Babylonians and taken to meet the king of Babylon face to face. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and I will deal with him there, says the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will never succeed. At that time, the Lord sent me a message. He said, your cousin Hanamel, son of Shalom, will come and say to you, Buy my field at Anathoth? Uh -huh. I don't know that word. That's you have right. the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. Then, just as the Lord had said he would, my cousin Hanamel came and visited me in the prison. He said, Please buy my field at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else. So buy it for yourself. Then I knew that the message I had heard was from the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth, paying Hanamel 17 pieces of silver for it. 32-37. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I scattered them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. 
They will be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose, to worship me forever, for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me, and they will never leave me. And I will find joy doing good for them, and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Before I read uh, into section one here, and I'm going to kind of go through this because most of the points are at the end, I want you to kind of visualize something real quick for me. Think about second chances for just a, just a moment. Think about second chances. Think about your life story. Think about the, the, the life that you've had with the Lord and the way he's treated you as an individual. Think about the second chances you've been given. And... What were those second chances predicated on? Well, a lot of people look at it systematically. Well, Christ went to the cross, grace, and then there's forgiveness, and then we have a second chance. That's a bit too, even though that's true, that's a bit too systematic. Okay, where did that come from? It stems from his love for you. That's where it comes from. You're, you, I'm all for it. I'm with you. Grace, totally with you. Uh, uh, cross, Absolutely, it's celebrated. You know, I, I applaud that. But let's understand where it all was rooted in. What was it rooted in? It's rooted in love. Rooted in love. Well, I was sitting there trying to think how many times, you know, that that I went to the Lord and He's accepted me back and yeah, and, and Jesus cleansed me from my sins and yeah, and, and it's just more than I can count on, on both hands. Absolutely. I mean, you think about it. I mean, what he's done for me. It's unlimited. Lie, mm -hmm. It's just uh, more than I could even tell, more than I could even think. If we, want, if we meditate on that, every one of us should be to some degree emotional about that because you realize what you've been rescued from. And you also realize how much you didn't deserve that kind of love. And, and it's often we don't fully get that until we're on our knees and you feel this release. You see the scriptures. And you realize God has forgiven me, and I've been reinstated uh -huh. to a right standing Amen. with Him. It's amazing. God knows I'm not worthy. Mm -hmm. Right. He knows it, and He knows I'm a mess. <laughs> and, and it takes Him and 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 Linda and and all that I can do. Mm -hmm. And then I always have to look at the cross mm -hmm. because that's where my hope is. That's right. It's not in me. It's not in you. It's not in Linda. Mm-hmm. But it's it's in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus. Well, let me put it this way. Let's let's all be honest. Every one of you is a mess, right? Amen. Every one of you is a mess. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're all a mess. There's not one person actually good, except by what Christ has done. Amen. And we're we're we are a product of Him. And so I, I'm bringing that up because we're, as we go through this, you'll you'll start to kind of see the theme there. But I I, I want you to realize and think about the second chances that God has given you. Uh, part 1, Judgment Foretold. This account occurs in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, just months before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. In 589 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem in response to a rebellion initiated by King Zedekiah. The siege dragged on for nearly three years, with only one respite when Nebuchadnezzar lifted it, which respite means just a, a rested time. But it was uh, uh, the siege itself, think about this, siege itself uh, went about three years, three years and some change, somewhere around in there. Uh, he was respond, uh, responding 
to threatening military movements by the Egyptians who had promised Zedekiah military support. The appointment of Zedekiah as king and the imprisonment of Jeremiah are described later in the book. Jeremiah, who was living in Jerusalem at the time, took advantage of this lull in the fighting to travel to his hometown of Anathoth in Benjamin, about three miles away. The purpose for the trip was to settle some family business related to the redemption of property. As he was leaving Jerusalem, the sentry arrested Jeremiah, accusing him of defecting to the enemy. Jeremiah denied the charge, but to no avail. He ended up under arrest in the courtyard of the palace guard. The authorities regarded Jeremiah with suspicion because of the message of his preaching. He had been telling the leaders that they would not prevail against their enemy. Now, this is a, a, I want to really key in on this because a, as a prophet, his job was to convey the message of the Lord, right? That was to, he was to convey the message of the Lord. So he conveys this very telling message, and it wasn't that they were going to win. It was that they were going to lose. That was the message. Because he understood the word that had come to him. This is because of rebellion. This is why this is happening. This is what's going to take place. But the people actually had a response to this. And the leaders of the day, I want to show you this. It says, in addition, Jeremiah also prophesied that God would hand the city over to the enemy and that Zedekiah would uh, be captured and taken to Babylon. Now, considering his role, because we're going to kind of slowly move into this, considering Jeremiah's role, how influential do you think that was? He's a prophet, right? So God speaks to him, and all the people know what he's there for. They know what he's, he's proclaiming. And, and this is disturbing to them because that's not what they want to hear from their prophet. We want to hear you tell us good things, which is why we've been warned about the itching ear of the last day. Because we have a tendency to want to hear only good things. We have a tendency to want to hear that. We want to hear that everything is okay. We want to hear that everything is going to get better. I hear this theme today, and people will smash you over the fact that you're not optimistic. <laughs> oh, man, we passed optimism a long time ago. No, no, that's not it. It's the fact of the matter. And see, and Zedekiah understood that. He understood that there's a fact here that y'all are missing. And, and what y'all are missing is, is there's been rebellion and there's been uh, denial. There's been sin and God is tired of it. He's not going to stand for it no more. And this is what's going to happen. So you can imagine as the prophet comes forth and says these things, what kind of effect this must have had on the people. Now look at this. Earlier, Jeremiah had gone so far as to declare that the Lord would hand the king of Judah King Jehoiachin, at that time, over to Nebuchadnezzar, even if he were the signet ring on my right hand, which is basically what he was saying was, is he was using him as his own personal uh, judge in order to enact judgment and to carry out what God wanted to do. That's what the signet, uh, representing the signet on my right hand. Such preaching sounded treasonous. You know, could just kind of get into that. Think about that. Such preaching sounded treasonous. What kind of patriot foretells defeat when the enemy is at the gate? What kind of patriot foretells defeat when the enemy is at the gate? Well, let's think about this for just a minute. The, the voice of certain leaders were very influential in that day. Very influential. 
the voice of these leaders had the power to move the people to one way or another. Now I'm about to shift gears here and I want you to listen very carefully. This is why so many people were so angry when a billionaire went and bought Twitter. <coughs> this is why. Now, now I'm not going to get on that tangent. You think I'm going to go there. Just, just listen to me carefully. Whether you like him or not, something massive changed when that happened. And it upset a whole group of people who were used to getting their way. And now, all of a sudden, this thing has opened back up for people to speak and to have influence. Because the enemy's goal uh, has always been to shut your mouth. In this circumstance, they were upset that he wasn't preaching good tidings. Because they knew that he was going to influence the people. They were like, what are you doing? Is there any way you can say something good? You're going to discourage the people. But see, that was the judgment. That was a part of it. And where the, vo where the, the people are moving is where everything is going to go. In this case, um, it was to understand what they were going to be having judgment for, what the purpose of it was for. They needed to understand that. In our country today, it's no different. It is still the exact same thing. Influential people move masses. I didn't say whether they was good or whether they was bad. I just said influential people. They move masses. This is why it's so, it's so vital that you, you are very careful about who you listen to. This is why it's so vital that you be very careful about who we're paying attention to, who we're supporting, who we're on board with, who we're not on board with. Um, you, every one of you know I, I brought up the... Uh, uh, the Disney thing last week or two weeks ago. That's not a boat that I want to be on. If that makes sense, you understand where I'm coming from. It's not a boat that I want to be on. I don't want to support that kind of stuff because they aren't going to try to indoctrinate my children. They have a loud voice, right? They have the ability to affect people by the masses. So you got to be careful with that. All right, so let's just keep going. Um, uh, what kind of patriot foretells defeat when the enemies at the gate? The leaders believe that such preaching would weaken the resolve of the people to hold out against the Babylonians. And it would. Yes, it would weaken them. But that was the plan. That was the whole point. It's like, you're not going to win this. And you're not going to win it because I told you so. And so he made sure they understood. It was like, God is exacting judgment on us. And this disheartened them. They're like, oh. And they knew. They knew they couldn't win against it. They knew that. Um. So much has changed in our world today, um, and I, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time just to talk about this, but uh, Pastor and I were actually talking about it over coffee the other morning, and that so much has changed in our world today that there was a time, and I'm going to use this as an example, there was a time when, when, a, when a prophet would call uh, for judgment, and the people would repent, because the people, even though they were sinning, actually knew and understood what the law was and what sin was. They understood it. They got it. And so... They were like, we have fallen from where we were supposed to be. We need to repent and go back to it. The difference between then and now and why you don't see people coming now is that no one even knows what sin is anymore. They don't even know what it is they're supposed to be repenting from. Now, that's lost. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd love to draw some parallels and say, you know what? We're just like them. No, we've actually surpassed that. That's gone. 
we're missing the actual window to even have the knowledge of what sin is. We're almost in a place, if not already surpassed it, that generations will have to die off and a new generation come up and rediscover the word fresh in order for things to come back to normal again, which that would be like three lifetimes out of here. So, you know, don't even worry about it. (laughs) Just make sure you end it well. Just make sure you end it well. But I'm, I'm serious. That's... That's what has happened, um, and what we see happening now um, is a great departing of that knowledge itself, the great, a great departing from that knowledge. Um, in the last days, there would be a vast increase in knowledge, right? We know this by the Word of God. There would be a vast increase in knowledge. That's probably the Internet. That's probably your cell phone. That's probably just anything. You know, that's a, that's a lot of stuff. We have a lot of information flying around, um, but we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power thereof. That's the form of the last day. And so we have obviously a lot of checkpoints in place pointing us to stay holy and to stay right with God. And so you can kind of see what's going on here um, and how detrimental this is. Okay, so King Zedekiah complained to the okay, said the leaders believed that such preaching would weaken the resolve of the people to hold out against the Babylonians. So King Zedekiah complained to the prophet asking why he kept prophesying like this. <laughs> why do you keep saying this? Now, now, this got the attention of the king. Why? Why did he get the attention of the king? Because the king knew whatever he said was influential. He knew it. And, and the, this is, and remember, I'm talking about kings here. He said, why do you keep saying stuff like that? And so the first response of the White House after this billionaire took over Twitter was to create a board for disinformation. Yeah. Why do you think that was? Because the king wants to make sure that the voices are controlled. Because what controls the people's voice is what's going to control the masses. I hope you see that. I'm not knocking nobody. I'm just telling you the truth. That's the way it is. If you couldn't see that when it happened, as a response, I was like, oh, my goodness. What a response. You're going to create a disinformation board? That's totally unconstitutional, by the way. Not that you didn't already know that. Those are things we should know. We should throw a fit about that kind of stuff. No, sir. You will not do that. Not in my country. I was listening to the Kings this weekend, and there was a brother on there talking about one of the plans the enemy's been doing. He wants to isolate you or insulate you, isolate you, then eliminate you. He insulates you so he keeps you quiet, shuts you up, isolates you, moves you out of the way so he can eliminate you. Absolutely. And I was like, man. In, in in systematic fashion, that's what we're seeing today. So we got to we got to stay on guard. Okay. Um, so he's he's um, Zedekiah wanted him to change the message. You need to change what you're saying, man. After all, why be such a fanatic? <laughs> why be so fanatical, man? Come on. There's no reason to be that like this. Yet even under pressure from powerful people, Jeremiah would not alter his preaching, and nor should you. He insisted his message was from God and that he has no authority to change it. Failure to preach God's message would make him a hireling. Let me explain to you what a hireling is. A hireling, this is what he was saying, he said this specifically. He said, I'll be a, I'll be a hireling if I do that. A hireling is someone who sees a wolf and then leaves the sheep to go fend for himself. That's a hireling. And then he said, a hireling and a, and a, and a charlton. And what that was in and I'm just going to kind of generalize it, what a Charlton was was a fake spiritual person. 
So he said, I'd be like someone that is completely fake, and, and I'm basically leaving the innocent to die. That's what he was saying. He said, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, would you say, I mean, yes, um, Jeremiah was obedient, but we've got a man here of, uh, of integrity, correct? We've got a man here of, of integrity and character, one that fears the Lord. Those things are still important today, church. Uh, character and integrity, people that will do what they say they're going to do and hold true to their word is what makes our country, uh, is one of the things that makes our country great. And, and um, being influential people, do you understand that to, in order, everybody today, they use it, the term kind of loosely, everybody today wants to be an influencer. And if you know what that terminology means, it means somebody that's on YouTube or that's on TikTok, they call them influencers. Everybody wants to be an influencer. Well, the thing about an influencer is, is that a true influencer is somebody that doesn't change their message when everybody says to. That's a true influencer. Somebody that refuses to quit speaking the truth when everyone else says shut up. Jeremiah was a true influencer. He was someone who had an impact and made an effect. Um, he was someone uh, that, that ha- held a lot of weight with the people. This is why the voices of people are so important today because there are so many other voices that are not good that are trying to drown out those voices. And so you have to you have to make sure that your voice is heard. And I'm not talking about you starting your own TikTok. <laughs> I'm talking about you being open about what you seem being the fault and the wrong in that and that where do we go from here? Because I think that's really the question that's being asked today is where do we go from here? What are we gonna do? Well, I'll tell you what we need to do. People need to repent. That's where we go, is come back to God again. Come back to a place of understanding of sin. We come back to that, then God can restore. Without that, there is no restoration. Uh, there were plenty of those in Jerusalem at the time, and Jeremiah refused to be one of them. Very good. Page 44. Prophetic and symbolic action. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of the spoken word. However, the ancient prophets often illustrated their prophecies with symbolic actions. There are numerous accounts in Scripture of prophets employing such actions, such as Ahijah, sorry, uh, the Shulamite, in 1 Kings 11, 29 through 31, Isaiah 8, 1 through 4, 22 through 3, Hosea 1, 2 through 11, and Ezekiel 4, 1 through 5, 5. These illustrative prophecies range from the simple object lessons, Jeremiah breaking a clay jar to illustrate the future of the nation in 19, 1 through 11, to actions that required the prophet to embody his message in a profound and personal way. Hosea, for example, also exemplified this, this when God commanded him to marry a prostitute illustrating how Israel had acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Meaning that there was, a, there was a symbolic thing that the prophet did that illustrated the way that God was feeling and the, that was the example that he was showing. So let me give you just a, just a little example about how I believe this works today. Because it's not the same, it's not the same today as it was then. It's a little bit different. So you heard me say before, and this is true, you can check this, that one of the signs of a prosperous country is its food supply. It's always, and America has always been known for its diversity of foods, that you, you can always come here and just feast until you're a glutton. I mean, literally, you can just do whatever you want here. 
And people have always admired that. In fact, people have actually wanted to come simply to our country just to eat. It's true. You just want to come to our country and eat because we have such diverse foods. And so if you believe that's the case and the truth, I think it's so interesting that we start seeing um, uh, supply chain problems and issues and starting to uh, see uh, food plants burning to the ground like 15, 20 of them in a week. That doesn't even make sense. But what, what do you, you think, what's the big deal? It's just food, just food processing. They'll fix it. It'll be okay. Well, what I'm trying to say is, is that isn't it interesting that the thing that symbolizes our country, one of our country's powers the most. Now, I ain't even on military yet. I'm not going to get on that. But I'm just talking about the food. One of the things that really shows our country's prosperity in our food is the very thing that we're losing. What do you think that's symbolic of? that we're losing our place. Oh no, no. Not just by the food. Yeah. Study it. Go back through history and look at it. Look at the Roman Empire. Look at what made them great. Look at their food supply. Look at what their imports were. They were known for it. We are known for it. How many parallels have you heard of the Roman Empire in the in the United States of America current day? Many. And so we've seen the same parallels today. And so when I see the food supply starting to become more scarce and challenged, I see a country that's starting to falter. It's starting to materialize. We're starting to see it. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that, but I just want you to understand that as he was using these people as, as symbolism here for what had been done, I believe we're also seeing that in our country with our food supply. I do. And I could point to a lot of other things. But I'm just going to use that this morning. So sometimes the children of prophets were given prophetic names, some of which were not flattering. For example, Hosea's daughter named lo Rahama, meaning not loved. Can you imagine being named not loved? What a name. <laughs> that's your name. Your name's not loved. He hates <laughs> you. You hate me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that, but that was that's what he had a name on. So Jeremiah himself would embody his message by remaining unmarried and childless. Jeremiah 16, 1-4. Highly unusual for a young man in his culture. Uh, this lesson included an example of prophetic symbolism in Jeremiah's ministry. And indeed, while Jeremiah was under house arrest in the court of the palace guard, Hanamiel came from Anahoth, sorry, trying to get the words down, and said, please buy my field at Anahoth and the land of Benjamin. By law, you have the right to buy it before it is offered to anyone else, Jeremiah 32, 7. This was likely the family business that Jeremiah was attempting to settle when he was arrested for trying to leave the city. The redemption of family property requires a family member to buy land from the impoverished relative. The role of this redeemer was to preserve the financial integrity of the family by preserving family property, which was very important then. When you have family property, this was it's, it's much like it is today. Um, you know, the, the, the saying, they're not making any more of that and when it comes yeah. to land. You're not making any more of that. You might want to buy as much as you can. Um, because uh, the prosperity of a family was, was greatly leaned on that property being passed on from one generation to the next. In fact, it was, it was uh, uh, very mandatory that it happened. And if it didn't happen correctly, you could lose a family fortune by losing it. So you had to, re you had to make sure you retained your right. So this is what he was trying to do. But you can see here God is working an example in the purchase of this property as the redeemer. When what does re redeem mean? To buy back. 
to buy back or to take back. So we're a part of the redeemed, right? Because we were bought back. Amen. Correct? So we're bought back. So he's using this that example, and he's telling them, he said, hey, this is really bad for you guys right now, but in time, it's going to get better. In time, I'm going to open these doors again of opportunity. I'm going to give you guys another chance. He said his prophetic transaction showed how God would be the kinsman redeemer for Israel, which type and shadow of Jesus also. So Jeremiah agreed to buy the property, and the deed was signed and sealed and placed in a ceramic jar for safekeeping. Jeremiah explained, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. What a message of hope for the future. Amen. All right, so let me, let me use it this way, and, and so we can, we can kind of see where this is going, because can we draw a direct example from this to our, our country today? I don't think so. Um, because in order, all things are under time right now. Do we agree with that? We're under time. Meaning, meaning that there are seasons and there are times and that we're ultimately heading towards the end of time. And so you say, well, well, if we don't, if there isn't another season of prosperity and all these things, then, then what is there? Well, first of all, let me say that we've had our season of prosperity. And might I say that it's been really good. Yeah. It really has. It really has been good. Uh, we've enjoyed things that people in, the, in this world live an entire lifetime and never enjoy. We've enjoyed them. We've enjoyed them here. We're currently still enjoying those things. Now you think, you're about to drop the old doom and gloom thing on us. No, I'm not. I'm just simply saying we've enjoyed some really good times here. But as you've heard me say, and as pastors spoke of it before, no season lasts forever. And that's fact. No season lasts forever. My question is, are we prepared to go to the next season? That's my, that's my big question, is that are we prepared to move on to the next season? Are we prepared for what's ahead of us? Are we prepared to hold true to what we believe and to continue on even if Jesus doesn't return? You okay with that? I'm with you. Jesus is coming back soon. Amen. I'm with you 100%. But are you okay with staying here through it if it doesn't happen in your time frame? Because that's a, that's a thought that many people don't even want to entertain. Are you and I okay in the face of adversity? Are you and I okay in the face of persecution, real persecution? Are you and I okay with that? That's a question I think has to be asked because there's a massive gray area right now. And even some of the smartest people on the planet that have studied this stuff are saying there are things happening that no one has predicted. We did not know it was going to happen like this. Amen. So we're talking about some gray area. I don't know what's going to happen. But... What I'm saying is, are you okay with that? Are you okay with being true to our God? Even when our season ends and we move to something different? I don't know what's ahead, but I want to make sure that we're ready. So he was saying, I'm not done here yet. That's what he was saying. So what's your hope? Well, I'll tell you what your hope is. It's quite simple, actually. Your hope is the end. It's that when this thing is done, that there is a heaven waiting for you if you serve him correctly. That's something you can really take heart in. That you will be back with the people that you love, that have went on before you. That we will praise the God that we've always praised. And that we will live with him forever. That's really been the, the whole push, hasn't it? That's been the whole push. So our hope is that. Our hope isn't that this thing comes back around again in 70 years. No. 
And I'll tell you why, because it would just we would go right back to where we was before. Yeah. As people in our nature, we're not very good people. Uh, part three. Let's go to part three because I'm running out of time. Jeremiah expanded on the significance of his prophetic actions, explaining that the Babylonian exile would be of limited duration. The Lord promised, I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. So, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, once again, time frames, his time's not our time, right? And so he's like, you're not going to be there for very long. And I'm thinking, 70 years is a long time. That's, that's, kind, of a, that's kind of a duration. But, but in the scope of everything, it's really not. It's really not. So he said, God would bring them back to their homeland. He would give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever. Uh, God had chosen them to worship him, and he would not only bring them back to their homeland, but would give them a heart to worship him in spite of their previous rebellion. God's heart for his people is expressed in Jeremiah 31, 8 through 20, a passage some believe to be the background for the parable of the prodigal son. It's not Israel, still my son, my darling child, says the Lord, I often have to punish him. <laughs> but I still love him. That's why I long for him. And surely will have mercy on him. Now, this is in quotations as this is an interpretation. Now, this is not going to be the same interpretation from your King James Version uh, because it's been, uh, I think it may have come out of a New Living Translation. I think that's where it come from. But the, the meaning in this really does still hold the same value it's that God still loves, God still cares, God wants people to come back to him, um, and that God has not changed. And I think that's one thing we really have to realize is that God has not changed. The same way to God back in the 30s, the same way to God back in the two, 2020s. It's repentance. It's living a holy life. It's, it's, not, it's not always getting your way. For some reason, I don't know, it got lost somewhere in the mix of everything. Uh, people only think God's good when he gives them what they want. And actually, it's the contrary. <laughs> it's, it's You're shaped and molded by not getting what you want. Don't you remember, you know, you raise your kids. Maybe some of you were raised that way. That's how you got taught the lesson of life was you didn't always get what you wanted. <laughs> but see, God has been redefined now as a God who only gives. Not a God of judgment. Not a God of wrath. Not a God that would ever do those things. He is. He's still the same God. So Jeremiah 32, 20, uh, 42 through 44 echoes the symbol that God had commanded Jeremiah to use, the purchase of land. God promised that land would be bought and sold, that normal business matters would resume. He spoke of Jerusalem and the land around it and even the southern desert regions known as the Negev. No matter how discouraged the people became during the exile, they still had the promise of God. When we are discouraged by our current situation, we can recall that God never forgets his own. Amen. Amen. He always keeps his promises to us. Our full restoration will come in the new Jerusalem with him in eternity. Absolutely. That's where the full restoration comes. So, but what about today? What about, what about the future? What is, this, what, is, uh, what is in the future for us exactly? I don't know. This country is going in a place and this world is going in a direction that I'm not 100% sure of. And nothing can be predicted at this point. Just make sure you know him. Make sure you have a good relationship with him. Make sure you are prepared to serve him regardless of circumstance. And I wish I could tell you that, that it's going to come back around, people. No worries. We'll get the dollar back and, and there'll be good leadership and 
and we won't have to worry about none of these things. And, and the next time, the, when the midterms come and, and, and the next president gets voted in, everything will just be better. It won't. It won't. No, under, and I'm, I, I, I believe in democracy. But I also believe in the fact that if people don't come back to God, no matter who you put in leadership, we're going to fall. Uh -huh. Amen. We have to repent and come back to a right relationship with God. It's the only way back. Amen. Um, I've stopped just a little bit early. Let me give you guys an opportunity. Uh, do you guys have any questions or, or comments that you uh, we want to make about the lesson uh, this morning? Yes, sir. No? You know, you're talking about love from a parent. <clears throat> yeah. I was wrong before I figured out what my dad really told me. Amen. He Amen. told me it's going to hurt me worse than it did you, but I never believed that until I got <laughs> No, no, problem. I didn't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. You know, we, we were talking about that uh, earlier. And, um, you know, God does love us. It's no different than he loved his children. But there has to be discipline. There has to be. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, sometimes there's got to be a breaking down of the current in order there, for there to be something new. Um, some people have, have, have talked about, um, you know, America coming back to God and, and being back in a relationship with God. I only see one path to that, people, and I'm going to be honest with you. I see one path. There's only one path to that, and it, it requires a breaking down of the current. You, there will not be a, an end-time revival, you want to call it that? If that's the way you want to term it. That won't exist unless there is a breaking down of the current. Well, we sat around and we think about, you know, while people are saving unsaved and the way the world is going, and we got plenty of time, but we really don't. No, we don't. We no, don't we really have plenty of time. Absolutely. This, kind, this thing could wrap up. Wrap up at any in, time. In a matter of days. Yes, absolutely. It's not years anymore. You know, Jim, and they were crying that at you know at the church in Acts and Paul, they was crying the return of the Lord two thousand years ago. Yeah. How much more do you think it is now? Someone else? Okay. John, go ahead. We got just a couple minutes here. The only thing that keeps popping in my mind now is because Jeremiah's redeeming the redeem the time. Uh, that's good. Time, very good. Very good. The days are evil. I've been getting that too. And, that's and, good. We're getting the time. You can look all around. Everything's unfortunately not good. I don't like speaking negative. But no, sure. I, no, even, Neither did Disney. Jeremiah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think the nuclear war is going to destroy the world. No. But it's going to destroy a lot of nations. Yeah. There's, there's going to be a whole lot of people left. In order, let me let me kind of weigh in just a second here. In, and we've been talking about a breaking down of the current. In order for the Antichrist to take over in power, there cannot be countries in and of themselves. Because remember that the Antichrist comes on the scene to rule the world. Not a country, not just one place. It comes to rule the world because there's a one world government. And so in order for that to happen, there has to be an upheaval. And that's exactly what you're seeing worldwide. You're seeing currencies in an upheaval. You're seeing food supplies in an upheaval. Everything is in an upheaval. This is the groundwork for the Antichrist. Uh -huh. It's the groundwork. Now, it's not here yet, but we're actually seeing it with our very eyes. Amen. I don't want to go off and say, like, I'm actually excited because I'm not, but you're witnessing history that's only been read about up to this point, <laughs> and you're actually living it. So I'm out of time. God bless you, church. Enjoy the service.